Sporting events such as the Olympics are important platforms for cultural exchange. A country can achieve greater visibility and generate interest in their country through an influx of new visitors seeking to attend the event and a large international audience watching from abroad. Athletes can also proudly advertise their national identity depending on what flag they decide to compete under. This episode, we will speak with Dr. Berner about Taiwan's sports diplomacy and its soft power potential. So let's get into it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Taiwan Salon, the Global Taiwan Institute's cultural policy and soft power podcast. My name is Adrian Wu, the host of Taiwan Salon and a research assistant at GTI. And I'm Zoe Weaver-Lee, a program assistant at GTI. Today, we are joined by Dr. Berner, a professor of sport and social theory at Loughborough University. A prolific writer, Dr. Berner is the author of Sport, Nationalism, and Globalization, European and North American Perspectives, the author of Sport, Sectarianism, and Society in a Divided Ireland, and has edited numerous other volumes on sports and politics. Okay, so starting with the first question, um, I'd like to begin somewhat broadly to set the stage for Taiwan's current efforts related to soft power. So I've been asking this question at the beginning of every episode. Um, according to Joseph S. Nye, soft power comes from three sources, culture, political values, and foreign policy. In your opinion, what are the key sources of Taiwan's soft power? Well, I think sometimes the the, the concept of soft power is a little bit vague. And, and to some extent, you're always thinking, where does this power actually get through to the rest of the world? And I think in that sense, um, it's not one of the three that Nye mentions, but probably the technological developments in Taiwan, um, particularly, of course, the, the development of the, the microchip industry and its significance worldwide. Um, I think it's probably the thing that gives Taiwan more leverage than anything else. I, I mean, I would agree that the, the political values matter, or they matter at least to parts of the world where democracy is seen as a, a good thing and that Taiwan is, is regarded as a representative of and repository of, of democracy. Um, but I'd have thought that the the problems that face Taiwan make it very hard to exert um a lot of soft power in the, the field of foreign policy, um, but certainly as a, a technologically advanced society, it has garnered a, a considerable reputation worldwide. Those are some some great points to start us off here. And, and I would actually like to kind of tie all that together and ask something more directed toward your expertise, which is uh, Taiwan's complicated history with Olympic participation and how that relates to soft power. So could you briefly explain why Taiwan is currently unable to participate under the name Taiwan and who is responsible for deciding the name that Taiwan is able to participate under and why is it so difficult for Taiwan to switch names? Well, of course, the the, the problems begin, I guess, with the, first of all, the fact that the Republic of China was represented in the, the Olympic Games in 1932 and 1936, but that, of course, included all of what the PRC would regard as, as Chinese territory. Um, 
once you have the, the civil war and the establishment of the People's Republic of China, things become more problematic. And of course, the, the KMT having decamped to Taiwan uh, still saw themselves as the representatives of the Republic of China. And so you get this tit for tat going through the 1950s and even onwards into the 1970s of who represents China in the Olympic movement. And it's not really until 1985, 1981 that we start to see an agreement emerge. I mean, an agreement, certainly one that was satisfactory to the PRC, probably not entirely satisfactory to the, the ROC, um, if we continue to think of Taiwan in, in those terms. But it was an Olympic formula. But one thing very clearly that the, the PRC um, would not permit was for the name Taiwan to be used to represent that of a, a country rather than a, a province of China. And the national anthem couldn't be played. So it's the, the national flag anthem. So that's the, the history of it. Um, why can't it be changed? Um, primarily because the PRC is so powerful in the IOC movement. Um, you'll know that there was a, a name rectification um, clause in the, the referendum held in 2018. And that was to assert that henceforth, people wanted Taiwan to be known as Taiwan in the Olympic Games and not uh, China Taipei or Chinese Taipei. That was rejected by 54.80 percentage of the, of the voters. Now, why, why was it rejected, given that um, there was so, so much support for the, the DPP, the, the, the Independence Party, if we can call it that, um, and yet over half the population said no to the, the name change? And although I know there might be a feeling, and, and it's true to some extent that a lot of Taiwanese athletes are keen to see that change of name, more of them who spoke up about the referendum said, please don't vote yes on this particular clause um, because it would completely end our participation in the Olympic Games. So in, 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 a, in a sense, they were putting their sporting interests before what might have been their political and identity interests um, so that they could participate. And of course, in that sense, saying that competing in the Olympic Games, whatever we're called, is a source of soft power for, for our island. Um, so that's the situation at the moment. And um, it seems to me that if it was put to a vote of the IOC, because of um, Belt and Road from China and because of the, the influence that China has in so many parts of the world now, it would be unacceptable to the IOC that Taiwan could operate as as Taiwan. Um, I think, of course, Western countries and possibly Japan would, would vote in favor of it potentially, but pretty much the whole of Sub-Saharan Africa, much of Asia, parts of the Caribbean and so on, uh, would support whatever China wanted to happen. Yeah, thank you so much for laying out that history. I mean, Taiwan's history is so complicated in so many ways. So you, you did a great job of, you know, laying out the pros and the cons and the different uh, considerations that Taiwanese people have to take. Um, so moving on to how the Olympics 
acts as a greater soft power opportunity. Can you talk a little bit more about how the Olympics acts as a soft power opportunity for the participating countries? And does participating under the name of Chinese Taipei affect Taiwan's ability to leverage the Olympics as a soft power opportunity? Okay, so to deal with the first part of that, I mean, I think, again, the soft power opportunity depends very much on what type of country one's talking about. I mean, there's no doubt that the Soviet Union in the past and China now have seen the Olympics as a major target to demonstrate national prowess, national strength. Um, failing sometimes to appreciate that the United States has its own sports culture, which is not necessarily attuned to the most of the Olympic sports. And, uh, you know, it was very noticeable when the, uh, the, the World Athletics Championships were held in Eugene, Oregon, that the American public is looks considerably less interested in track and field um, than the public in, in Europe, for example, and in other parts of the world. But nevertheless, I think hosting the Olympics has been important to China, um, very important. And the fact that Beijing is now the first city to have hosted both the summer and winter games is, I think, a good example of soft power through sport. It's also so useful for smaller countries. Um, I'm thinking here of a country like Jamaica with the, the success of its sprinters or Fiji with the success of its rugby union players. I mean, for them, they might only hear their national anthem two or three times in a, in a particular iteration of the summer games. But that is a matter of considerable pride for those nations. The soft power maybe doesn't extend much beyond the Olympics at that point. But certainly in terms of national self-confidence, I think it's important. And that takes us, of course, to Taiwan. And what does Taiwan get out of contesting the Olympic Games? Um, and I'm not sure that it matters too much whether it's as Chinese Taipei or Taiwan. There are moments, high moments, high points, and there are lower points. If you think of the, the Beijing Olympics, for example, the Beijing Summer Olympics, when the Taiwan baseball team lost to the PRC team, I mean, that was regarded as a, a, a matter of national disaster. I mean, these men had let the country down and, and of course, referring to it as a country. Um, so that was a low point. The high point, of course, came in Tokyo when um, the men's doubles pairing in badminton beat the PRC representatives um, and has been widely celebrated in Taiwan. So it's a it's a victory in one sport. And as some of my Chinese PhD students said, they're celebrating as if, you know, it was a wonderful thing. But look how many medals we won. And I said, but, you know, you're the biggest country in the world. You have the largest population. Um, this is a much smaller place. And they beat representatives of the country that they feel oppresses them. So it is, it is not surprising that people celebrated it. So that's... Um, that's the situation, I think, that big countries derive soft power from the Olympics, but so do smaller ones. And for Taiwan, that victory in badminton against China was almost as significant as winning another 10 medals in events where they beat other countries. So, so yes, they, they do get 
they do get soft power from the Olympics and they do so as Chinese Taipei, China Taipei. Would they get more if they were called Taiwan? Um, possibly, but I think most sports fans now who are interested in the Olympics know who they are and they, they know the circumstances in which they're called Chinese Taipei. Uh, so they still think of it as, as victories for Taiwan, even if Taiwan's name is not used. That, that is fascinating. And I'd, and I'd actually like to move back to something you said a bit earlier about, you know, you talked about the referendum in Taiwan and how it didn't garner as much public support because, you know, they were aware of the repercussions of, of that decision. So considering these reper- repercussions, do you think it's worth it for Taiwan to push for participation under Taiwan rather than Chinese Taipei? And should individual athletes themselves be the ones championing this cause? Um I think if, if, if individual athletes want to champion it, of course, I think they, they have the freedom to do that and, and should be allowed to speak, which, of course, athletes in, in the PRC wouldn't be allowed to speak on such issues. But in general, I think it's probably better to carry on with the present situation. I mean, I, I always have a feeling that people in Taiwan, sports lovers in Taiwan, have got a fairly pragmatic attitude uh, to a lot of these identity-related issues in sport. Um, So, for example, the the supporters of um, basketball in Taiwan or supporters of the the national football team or soccer team um, are very often pro-independence young people. But they're very happy to see some of their players being represented in the, the Chinese leagues, so in the Chinese Super League in soccer, for example, and they're even willing to accept that sometimes they are being chosen for Chinese Super League teams on the basis that Taiwan is the same as Hong Kong and is the same as Macau. Now, of course, in normal circumstances, they would completely repudiate that idea. But for the purposes of making sure that their players, their national team players, are playing at a higher level than they would in Taiwan, they almost turn a blind eye to that. Um, and, I, and I think that's generally true of many of them in relation to the Olympics as well. You know, it's better that we're competing at the highest levels without risking um, being ostracized or marginalized in global sport. And I think, I mean, I'm no sports evangelist. I'm not one of these people that thinks that sport can solve all the problems of the world and and bring disparate groups of people together. But I do think in the case of um, Taiwan and mainland China that the more sporting contacts there are, possibly the better. Um, and at the moment, these contacts would not take place if there was a real dedicated effort to change the name to Taiwan. Those are some great points because um, I, I love that we're talking about what individual Taiwanese people are constantly balancing between political and, uh, you know, just participating in, in, in the sport. So uh, thank you for elaborating on that. But I, I would also like to kind of talk about um, athletes outside of Taiwan. So, uh, you know, in recent years, athletes such as Ines Cantor Freedom, you know, have also expressed support for Taiwan. Um, so do you think this is this is a good thing for, for their participation in sports? Again, I, I would defend their right to, to say these things, um, just as in the case of Meza Ozil, the, the 
a German soccer player who criticised China's human rights um, record. And, and of course, that led to his club at the time, Arsenal in London, um, pretty much being rejected by the, the Chinese Arsenal supporters. Um, but, you know, they, they speak their mind. They, they believe in, in the things that they're saying. I'm always worried if people interfere too much in things that are not directly relevant to them. I, I know that sounds ridiculous. That I, I am trying to deny them freedom of speech, but I don't know that um, that they necessarily always help. I, I'm quite mindful of a, a situation where the Formula One driver, Lewis Hamilton, um, was thinking about taking the knee before the US Grand Prix. And I was informed by a, a journalist here that he had sought some advice from the Williams sisters, and they said probably best not to. At the time, they felt that Donald Trump would make something off that and say, you know, what's this guy coming over from England um, and not respecting our anthem or our flag? And so in that sense, Hamilton at the time didn't do it, and, and I, I don't think has done since, at least not in, in the United States. So I think sometimes people can do more harm than good if they, they kick up too much of a fuss. I don't actually think you know, people were celebrating much in Taiwan when, um, when Cantor made his statement. Um, I mean, I think they, they thought good for him, but I, I don't think they thought that's going to be a major turning point. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's good to think, too, about people talking about issues that maybe they don't understand the full nuance and whether that support is being seen as authentic or just a political statement in the spur of the moment. Um, moving away from the Olympics. So as you have noted in uh, articles that you've written, Taiwan has hosted international sporting events such as the 2009 Summer uh, Deaf Olympics, 2009 World Games, 2017 Universiade. Can you talk about the importance of hosting these events for Taiwan? How can these events function as part of a soft power strategy? Yeah, I think this is really important because I think for any country that's able to, even if you can't host a, a, a one of the world's mega events, uh, probably the Summer Olympics and the FIFA Men's World Cup, if, even if you can't host one of these or, or get the hosting right, I think just to host big multi-sport events is really important because it demonstrates the country's organizational skills, transport system, the warmth of the greeting that people receive. Um, really, really good. I mean, if you want a, an early example of soft power through sport, the fact that Adolf Hitler was able to host the the, World, the the Olympic Games in Berlin in 1936 and start a complete charm offensive was quite remarkable. I'm not saying that that's, that was a major factor in, in ensuring that he, he would take the steps that he subsequently took, but, um, but it worked for him. And, and ever since, I think, people have been aware of how hosting events can be a, a really beneficial thing. Um, and I think the the Chinese government is very conscious of that, um, certainly by hosting their own numerous events. I mean, they've become probably the most prolific in terms of hosting major sporting events and other events, expos and the like. 
And it was for that reason, I think, that they were very reluctant to let Taiwan host many things in the past. And the, the 2017 Universiad is fascinating in that regard, because, of course, without any sporting event, any major sporting event, you get time to prepare for it. So you get the hosting rights usually about seven years before the event takes place. That's what happened with the Berlin Olympics, of course, um, when Adolf Hitler had still no, not come to power or even come to any sort of prominence. And by the time the games were held, they became the Nazi Olympics. So when, when the Universiad was allowed to take place in, in Taipei, um, Ma was still the, the leader of Taiwan, um, KMT, fairly supportive of closer relations with um, mainland China. By the time it took place, of course, the DPP had won the presidency and Tsai Ing-wen was, was in charge. And all of a sudden, the, the Chinese previous tactics seemed to have been successful because they had prevented various uh, Taiwan cities from hosting previous events. They'd failed to prevent them hosting the Universiad. So what they then did um, was sent only about half their delegation to take part arriving late, um, not showing any great support for the thing, not turning up for the opening ceremony because um, the person that the, the Taiwanese think of as their president was going to make the speech. And um, uh, the Chinese said, well, you can describe her as the, the regional leader or something of that sort or the provincial leader. That was not agreed to. And so they, they, they tried definitely to disrupt the event. And, and that shows both how important these events are to the, the PRC, but also how important I think they are to Taiwan. Yeah, so speaking of how, you know, the PRC sees these events as very important, um, I also remember that in your article, you indicated that the PRC um, might be blocking Taiwan's bids to host events. What can Taipei do to counteract these efforts? It's, it really is very difficult. I mean, they can keep putting together very good um, hosting bids um, and hope that enough countries um, are sympathetic enough to Taiwan that they say, yes, we'd like this to happen in Taiwan. They've put together a good set of proposals. They, you know, we respect this. The real problem with the previous ones was that um, each time it was obvious that a, a Taiwan city, or in some cases, two cities, were going to bid for an event, the Chinese suddenly put a lot of money and a lot of kind of charm offensive behind their competing cities. Um, so Beijing won. And I mean, I think Beijing, that that was not surprising for the Universiad. I mean, uh, you know, it was a, a major city. But Shenzhen, which of course is a big city and a, a prosperous city, but Shenzhen, far less well known in the world, but they simply made it almost impossible for other delegates to, to deny the right to host in Shenzhen. Um, but they didn't put anybody up to compete with Taipei for the 2017 Universiad. And in a way, it kind of happened by default. I mean, if, if they'd had a crystal ball and seen that um, the DPP would be in charge, uh, they might well have put up some opposition to Taipei hosting the event. 
In addition to international sporting events, Taiwan has also held national sporting events, such as Taiwan's National Indigenous Games. Could these also hold soft power potential for Taiwan? Um, not necessarily the games themselves. I, I suspect outside Taiwan, the, the event isn't well known. But there is a lot of soft power to be gained from the indigenous peoples um, of Taiwan. I mean, I think symbolically it's so important that they're there. That they were on the island before anybody who described themselves as Chinese had turned up. And, um, and of course, in terms of sport, they do make a huge contribution. Um, baseball in particular, the, the national sport, or as it was called in the United States for so long, the national pastime, uh, dom is dominated often by t indigenous players. Um, around about half of the national team are usually indigenous. And, um, and in some of the sports in the Olympics as well, it's indigenous athletes who are significant um, and also, of course, it's not only in sport, but in terms of music and dance um, and throughout, certainly throughout East Asia, um, young people and, and even older people know Taiwanese artists. And, and again, many of these are from the, the indigenous tribes. So, so I don't know that the national games themselves are, are so important for soft power. But I think the, the indigenous peoples, in a, in a curious way, both symbolically and in more material terms, punch above their weight in terms of giving, giving soft power or some sort of cultural power to Taiwan. It is great in a sense, but of course, as with the United States in, in terms of African-Americans, there is a danger um, of stereotyping. What are the indigenous peoples good at? They're good at playing sport, they're good at singing. And that creates possibly a feeling amongst some of the indigenous people that that is the only things they can be good at. So in visiting schools in, in southern Taiwan, I'm struck by the fact that in some schools you get indigenous children and um, Han Chinese children uh, studying together. And when I've asked headmasters about that, they've said, well, they the parents of these indigenous kids want their children to do more than play baseball and sing. The first time I went to a solely indigenous school, um, the first thing the headmaster did was showed me the, the baseball diamond uh, for a tiny little school. I mean, I don't know how they even managed to put together a baseball team. And the next one was to hear the school choir. And so that's an issue, I think. And, and it's sometimes... I feel the indigenous people are often used for touristic purposes or if anybody visits a conference in Taiwan, it almost certainly will be treated to some demonstration of uh, indigenous dancing and things, which is great. And it gives money to communities and, and it does accord with the idea that they do bring soft power for, for the island. I just worry a little bit sometimes though that it's a, it's almost an abuse of them as well. So I, that, I just wanted to hesitate and, and give that caveat um, about their, their expertise in sport. You're going off of these recent developments, um, just to close the interview. Um, can you comment on the future of Taiwan soft power? So what are some challenges that you expect Taiwan to face or opportunities that they should take advantage uh, moving forward? Um, or also additionally, is there anything that we haven't covered that you would like to discuss uh, in the remaining time? 
in terms of the, the soft power issue, I mean, I, I think the, the the PRC would like to challenge the 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 importance of the microchip industry in in Taiwan, and of course, a lot of the the foundries are on the west coast of of Taiwan, not far from the the sea often, so they would be attacked of course first it was possibly in, in any event of an attack so that's a challenge and also that china would like to develop their own microchip industry but i think experts seem to think that there's some way off being able to do that so as long as they have that they have leverage i think and and that's a form of soft power in terms of sport I, I do think, and this goes back to something we've talked about earlier, I do think that their continued participation in things like the Olympic Games, the World Baseball Championships, um, and other events of that sort is very important. And, and I think at the moment, uh, having the name Chinese Taipei, absurd as it often sounds, it is probably a price worth paying. And I think, it would be good to think that sporting contacts will continue across the, the strait. Um, whether that would depend on a KMT president being elected in the future, I'm not sure. And, and I, you know, it's, it's difficult for me to gauge what the, the current attitudes are amongst voters. But, but one way or another, I think contacts have to be kept alive. Um, and I, I always, because I deal with so many Taiwanese and, and PRC students, I'm constantly trying to keep dialogue going amongst them. Um, and last night, in fact, I had a, a visit from a, a former uh, student from Taiwan and a number of my uh, mainland Chinese students came to, to meet him. Um, some of them had met him before and, and we had a good night eating Korean food. And I thought that just about sums up what is possible with, with young people who have reasonably progressive values and, and can communicate. And, and sport's a great arena for communication. Yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Banner, for, for joining us and bringing up all those important points. I mean, I think it really is such a good way of connecting, um, you know, by playing sports. And it is such a good way of showing Taiwan's culture and uh, ability in making those connections. No, you're very welcome. And, and thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk with you about these issues. Despite an international focus on the Olympics, it's clear that there are many different sporting events that Taiwan can leverage for international visibility. Thank you so much to Dr. Berner for joining us and to you, our listeners, for tuning in. This podcast was made possible in part by the Taiwan Academy's Spotlight Taiwan Grant. Production assistance is from Adrian Wu and Zoe Weaverly. Thank you also to our staff and interns for your support in making this episode possible. Intro and background music is by I'm Difficult, Wilshire Ji Cho Xiaonu. The Global Taiwan Institute is a 501c3 think tank located in Washington, D.C. If you're interested in learning more about GTI, be sure to check out our website at globaltaiwan.org, where you can find information about our Global Taiwan Brief and our frequent public seminars. You can also listen to more episodes of Taiwan Salon on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcasts, as well as on our website's podcast page. Thank you for listening, and until next time.